Well, good morning and welcome to the third installment of the series, Move the Mountain. Uh, this series, by the way, is building every weekend that we're worshiping together. It's building up until two weeks from now. It's going hit to the, hit the crest, the peak on Easter Sunday, uh, April 1st. Just as a reminder, uh, you probably, hopefully, were handed one of these square cards on the way in this morning. It just, uh, it's an invitation to join us for our Easter worship times at 9.15 and 10.45. In addition to that, what I thought was cool is that as we get together and as we get one of these cards, what we do is we take this. It's not a card for you, by the way. Like, you, you're here. You know where church is and when church is. Just come on back every weekend. You'll figure it out real quick. The card is for somebody who doesn't go here already. And the reason why you just received one is because we want you to pray for the one. Uh, pray for the person in your life that God has put in your life that maybe needs to hear a story about a mountain moved. Um, pray for the one in your life that needs to move from fear to faith. Pray for the one in your life that needs to make a move from darkness into light. Pray for the one who needs to hear a resurrection story. So take one of these cards, pray for the one, pray for an opportunity, pray for an invitation, a meaningful invitation to church, and, and watch to see as God takes that away. We're, uh, like I said, we're in a part three of the series, Move the Mountain. Today, we're moving from darkness to light. And I'll tell you what I mean by darkness. It's just the realization uh, that we, in some way, are in darkness, are some way living out our lives without all the information that we need at our disposal to make good, sound, and wise decisions. You could say it like this. Um, it's possible that we don't know just what we don't know and that could end up hurting real bad. I'll tell you an example, tell you a story. Um, this, was, uh, this was when Dirk was a younger man, and I was still in school, and you don't really find out what kind of person you are until group work is involved. Some of you, yeah, some of you can laugh because you know, you get it. Uh, and, uh, and I found out what kind of person I was. I, um, side note, I, I kind of tend to fill silence a lot, and it's probably why I'm the guy with the stage and the microphone, because I just, I can't stay quiet. So when I get put into a group and I get put into a more introverted group, I did what I do to my own detriment is I just like start taking over and start like delegate, delegating, you know, authority like you're supposed to do, right? And it's like, hey, okay, so here's the deal. The group project, I don't remember what the topic was. It was like volcanoes or something. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Probably also the point, but like, I start taking everything on and it's a presentation coming up. So it's like, all right, okay, so Sarah, like you're over here and you're gonna, you're gonna work on the, like the copy and putting together what the, some of the content is gonna be and research it. And we got Paul over here and he's gonna work on some design work and maybe some slides together and Jessica, there's probably a Jessica and she's gonna do something too. But I'm the project manager and I'm just, and looking back, like I can realize starting, what, starting to figure out what went wrong because they like started, hey, maybe we should take a look at, no, 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 no. Hey, Sarah, keep down. We've got a job to do, Jessica. Like, stay focused. We are a lean, mean, presenting machine, all right? So stay on task and let's get this thing done. I didn't realize until it was time for us to go up for the presentation that we did our project on the wrong topic. It was well done, I'm sure. What you don't know can sometimes hurt. And so we've got these blind spots. Now that's 
what we don't know sometimes in a, in a class project or maybe at work or at home, but, but I want to take a look at that same principle but apply it to our spiritual lives. It's like a vehicle. We've got these blind spots that we might know are there. We just don't know what's in there. Or maybe there's such blind spots that we don't even know that we have them. But this is what God is going to do for us this morning. He's going to show us what a few of these blind spots are. And because he's God and he literally invented our sense of humor, he's going to show, reveal to us what our blind spots are by using the story of a blind guy. I love this. If you have a Bible, let's open it up. We're going to go to Luke chapter 15. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. There's also Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home or if you just like ours better, take it. We love that. That's our gift to you. Okay, Luke chapter 18. We'll start off with the first four words, 35. As Jesus approached Jericho. Well, hey, Okay, I love how this works out. So just side note on where we are in the Jesus story. He's going through Jericho toward Jerusalem. Toward Jerusalem where he's going to, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. He's, spoiler alert, is going to die and come back from the dead. That's Easter. He's on his way. And what's so cool about this is that we're going, to be, we're going to be journeying through this thing almost in real time. Like Jesus is maybe 10, 14 days out from Easter in his life. And he's passing through Jericho. By, by the way, we're about 14 days out from Easter. When we get together next weekend on what's often known in the church as Palm Sunday, it marks the occasion when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and they waved palm branches. We're going to do that story next week. And then on Good Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday-themed message at 6.30. And then when we gather together on Easter Sunday, well, the sermon basically writes itself. <laughs> uh, so we're... We're moving through this almost in real time. It'd be awesome if I could say that was planned, but I, I realized it, and, and so that's pretty cool. And Jesus, it's important for our story, Jesus is just passing through. Okay, he's passing through when? A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. When he he hears the crowd, he speaks up and asks. The reason why he stood up and asked who, who's coming by is because there's a cultural phenomenon in the first century Middle East and also today that when an important figure or group of people come to town, people from that town go out, meet said person, and, less, and like escort them in. Now, we do the same thing, too, when uh, a, a sports franchise wins a national championship and people go out to the airport or the bus terminal or wherever and say, like, welcome home, U of M, you made it, national champions. MSU fans. All right, cool. Good to know. You stayed up and watched it. Right, like we meet and we, like, escort them in and, and welcome them to town. They did the same thing back then. So the guy, the blind guy, with his, with his blind, sensitive hearing, he hears, like, like kids go out first, and, and yelling and screaming and celebrating, there's somebody important. And then the noise, the crowd, like, like ramps up. And so he gets the sense, long before he hears who it is, that he knows it's someone important. And he speaks up and he asks, who is it? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Keep that in mind. They give 
they provide a geographical marker, uh, Jesus from the town of Nazareth. And what he does in the next line is he switches that out. In verse 38, he called out Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see what he did there? The, the blind guy in the story, he switches the geographical marker from, for the royal marker, which I think speaks volumes about the kind of faith that this guy has. Because, because he's heard rumors, nothing more. He's heard stories and rumblings as a, as a blind guy might about who this could possibly be. When it says Jesus of Nazareth, uh, when Jesus of Nazareth, then he switches it to Jesus, son of David. What he is acknowledging in that moment is not simply, oh, I believe that you have like royal lineage coming back to David. What he's saying is something so much more than, oh, Jesus, I'll bet you could go ancestry.com and trace your family line, like right up to King David himself. No, 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 it's much, much more than that. What he's saying is a reference back to 2 Samuel chapter seven, where God promised, made this everlasting promise, a covenant even with David is saying, someone from your line one of your descendants isn't just going to be a king, but the king. Somebody from your line isn't going to be just a lord, but the lord of lords. Somebody from your line will sit on the throne and will never be removed again. And when this blind guy hears Jesus of Nazareth and puts together the rumors and the speculation, and when he stands up, he stands up and he says, Jesus, I believe you're that king. I believe you're the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I believe that you're the one of David. I believe that you're the Messiah. Let me, let me ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. Just think about it. If you want to answer in the car ride home, that'd be an appropriate time. But let me just ask, how is it that a blind guy in the story can see Jesus better than many of us today? Like he hears the rumors. He's never read anything about him. He's never been impacted by the people who call themselves Jesus' followers, not yet anyway. He's never been blessed in that way. He just hears some speculation about this guy and it's enough for him to stand up and say, I believe you're the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I think that the answer to that question, how is it? that a man who has never seen sees Jesus better than many of us today, I think you have to say the answer to that is faith. But he has this incredible kind of faith that doesn't require sight. It doesn't require the experience of, of being changed yet. Because everything in me wants to look at this story and say, well, Jesus, first give him his sight. First do a miracle, and then he's gonna respond with belief. But this guy inverts that around and says, no, no, no. I'm showing you that I'm in before you've ever done anything for me, right? Like, I'm showing you that I believe before I might get a miracle. And that's the kind of faith that I think throughout all of Scripture, God tends to, to love and God tends to, to foster and love to see grow up. The kind of faith, the kind of faith that doesn't require sight. And I wonder why God would require, God would prefer 
faith over sight. And I think, and I think it's this, and, and we see it lived out in the, in the guide, but, but I think it's this, is that when we live by sight, we, we can never really walk beyond what we can see. But if we, if we live by sight, we're limited. We live our lives limited by what we can see. But if we could find a way to live by faith, then we're only limited by what God can see. Amen? Right? So, so it's like this. It's like this. Uh, one week after my wife Chris and I got married, we uh, rented a house with my family in Hawaii. Let me just say that again because I don't think you got the punchline. One week my fam- after marriage, my family, we all rented a house together. No, okay. So that's true. It did happen. But because we're like new and we didn't have anything and we're also millennials, we borrowed one of their cars and we, uh, we went off on this trip, this road to Hana, it was called, it was a Jeep four-wheel drive, and we're like kind of going through. It was this road that lots of people did. It's kind of through the jungle. It was awesome. It was amazing. Trip of a lifetime. You know, I'm never going to forget that. But the best part about it wasn't just the road. Okay, that had some cool sights along the way. But ahead of time, somebody gave us this really great book. It was one of the like, Lonely Planet, like Ultimate Guidebook or something like that. And in this chapter, on this, this road that you could kind of drive around, into this jungle and see some cool stuff, it had some, some like hidden, some secret instructions. Where it would say, you know, at mile marker 8.9, uh, about, about 12 feet beyond the mile marker, there's a fence and there's a break in the fence. Okay, pull over, stop there, sneak through that fence. And then you're like reading the instructions and you're going, look up, again, through the jungle and about 200 yards in the distance, there's a dead tree. It looks like it's been dead for a couple of decades. Walk towards it. All right, so then like I'm here with my new wife and it was pretty awesome because I'm like hacking my way through the jungle like Indiana Jones and like this way, honey, okay, hoping something's on the other side as we walk towards this dead tree. And just as we get there, it opens up into this amazing, there's like waterfall coming down, fresh water from the mountain above into this like fresh pool below. And there's nobody around because nobody else is hacking through the jungle to get to this place. And, and the, best, the best sights, the best experience on that trip never would have come to us had we just walked by sight. The best sights we would have never experienced unless we opened up that good book and walked by faith that someone had a vision here before and they were sharing it with us. You get it. And so what I'm saying to you guys is that it's possible that as you go through struggles with family a sister or a brother or a wife or a boyfriend, a housemate, somebody you're just not getting along with and you just, you want to hack off the relationship and just be done with it forever because, because I just, I don't need that in my life. And you want to write somebody off. Except Jesus is here telling you, hang with them, be patient, show compassion, be merciful, walk in grace. And there's no way that you're going to see that beautiful restoration on the other side if you're only walking by sight and not faith. Your, your vision is going to be limited by what you can only see. But if you could walk by faith, your vision is limited by only what God sees. And so the first takeaway, the first kind of blind spot that this guy is going to introduce to us 
is that if you can see it, listen, it's probably not faith. Because as Christians, as followers of the way, as followers of Jesus, we walk by faith, not by sight. All right, the story goes on because this guy, obviously, he has faith. And so in verse 39, we see some of the resistance to that faith. And you're going to encounter resistance to your faith. It says, 39, those who led the way in the crowd, remember, rebuked him and they told him, this is probably putting it mildly, to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, now, it is, it, it is putting it too mildly. Hey, guy, be quiet. Like, like when have you ever seen a rowdy crowd in, a, in a, like, a nation like this, right? Just simply, can you keep it down? Like, we're trying to do a chant here, J-E-S-U-S, right? And you're wrecking it with the have mercy on me, right? No, they're not. If you kind of translate that word a little bit more woodenly and, and, you, and you get the sense that they're shouting back at this guy, shut your mouth. Uh, pipe down. Keep quiet. It's Jesus coming through after all. And so like this, the louder he yells, the, the, the harder it gets to have his voice heard. The more he works at it, the more he follows after who he believes is God, the more the resistance ramps up. And the resistance ramps up Really, it doesn't ever stop. Because even if he found a way to make it to the front of the pack, and even if he got to have this one-on-one with Jesus as everybody is watching, and even if he asks for his sight to be restored, and even if Jesus miraculously heals him, his life isn't going to be easy after that moment. It's the almsgiving, giving to the poor, giving to the needy, that was highly valued in first century Judaism, first century cultures like this. And so what would happen is it was a job with transactions to beg. And he could sit on a corner and you had to have some kind of physical ailment, a missing arm, a leg. Blindness was great. I mean, sorry, I didn't mean it like that. But like it was very visible to the people and it was, it was very debilitating, but not so much like leprosy that he could still be around people. And so, and so he had his corner and he had his life plan all mapped out for him. He could ask everybody for, for mercy as they walked by and as they would drop some coins into his bucket, he would pronounce a blessing on them. And the bigger the gift that went into his bucket, the bigger the blessing he would pronounce back. Blessings on them and their family and their business and their life loved ones and their friends and their social status and, and, and everything, again, in proportion to the gift that was offered him. But now if he makes it to the front of the pack and if his sight is restored, he's healed. He can't go back to his life being a beggar anymore. He's got he's to find work. He's got to find a job. And he's, he's never had any work experience. He never has any ed- education. He, he never really develops business relationships that are going to help him make it to that next level. His life from here on out, whether he's healed or whether he just stays in a crowd shouting and waiting for the crowd to be shouting over top of him, no matter what happens from this moment on, it's going to be hard which introduces us to our second blind spot about when the resistance come. That don't assume that just because that God is in something, it's going to be easy. Don't assume that because God is in it, it'll be easy. It might not be. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that just because you have resistance automatically means that God is in it, but, but, but oftentimes it's the case is that we're led into this false sense of, well, well, well if God is asking me 
to step away from this place of employment and look on to something new, then that thing is going to happen automatically. No, no. You might step out and God might wait. And God might have you hang out there for a while. And God might be saying, I'm going to teach you the lesson of the lifetime right here. And this is exactly how I want it. Not you. Don't assume that just because I'm in something, God says, that it's going to be easy. You think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be easy. Try saying that to, to Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery. Like we think that just because God is in something, it's going to be easy. Try, try explaining that to Moses, who at 40 was declared an enemy of the state and went on the run away from Egypt. Oh, and then 40 years after that, at 80, he was called back for an encore career to lead God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into a, you guessed it, 40-year wilderness experience, leading the people, grumbling people in the desert, right? If you think that something is if God is in something, it's going to be easy. Try saying that to, to Esther, who fulfilled a dream beyond her wildest dreams to, for this little Jewish girl to grow up and become the literal queen of Persia, only to realize almost immediately receiving that status title that, that as a Jewish person now, the persecution is cramping. Now she has to put her, her name on the line to save these people. You think it's, it's going to be easy because God is in it, right? Explaining that to Mary, who, who God said, I'm going to save the world through a baby that you're going to have. And you're pregnant and you're a teenager and you're unmarried, but God is in it. And God is doing these incredible things in and through you, blessed one. Don't assume that God is in it. It's going to be easy. There's a reason, I think, that Paul, when he's writing the, to the church in Rome and all of us today, that he writes and he says, may neither death nor life nor height, nor depth, nor angel, or demon, or the present, or the future separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's a reason why Paul feels the need to point out to each and every one of us today that if God is for you, who can stand against you? So don't give up. Don't back down. Don't hedge your bet. Don't fall short. Keep fighting. Keep pressing on. If God is in it, it's worth it. And he gets it. This guy gets it. It's worth it. It's worth it. And so he presses on and he keeps yelling and he keeps breaking their chant until finally he gets the attention of Jesus. And Jesus stopped. I love this in verse 40. And Jesus stopped and he ordered the man to be brought to him. That's a funny way of saying he didn't, he didn't order the man to come to him. He didn't order the crowd to bring him to him. He ordered that the man be brought to him. See, what Jesus is doing, and this is totally beside the point, but I love it because it's the picture of the kingdom. It's a picture of grace. We need to get this. We need to hear these little sidebars of the story. What he's doing is he's completely inverting, subverting the social status of the day. The crowd were the haves. The handicapped guy was the have-not. And what he is doing is he's observing that the haves are, are yelling at, are oppressing, are marginalized the have-nots. And for Jesus, this is not okay. This is cool. So what Jesus does is he takes this system that is, that you and I, we all experience, and he totally flips that upside down. He flips the script on them. And he goes, no, 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 no. You guys, the haves, you're not allowed to just marginalize the have-nots. It's more than that. 
if you're going to follow me, crowd, you got to know just how this thing works. I tell you what, you know, crowd, how you're escorting me as the guest of honor into this city? I want you to do that with him right now. Go, go ahead. Go get him, the blind guy that you've been, you've been yelling at to, to shut your mouth, to keep, keep quiet, to pipe down. Go grab him and make him the guest of honor and escort him into my presence. You see, he's, he's flipping this thing around. It's an upside down kind of kingdom that we Christians live in and it makes no sense and I love it so much. Beside the point though, so we're moving on. When he came near, when the man finally came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And I'm like, Jesus, uh, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? <laughs> like he's a blind guy and you're asking him, what do you want me to do for you? I think that what, what, what's happening is we have to realize the guy hasn't been shouting out, Jesus, cure me of my blindness. Jesus, give me sight. He's just been saying, have mercy. And I think there's this element of the story and personally, like this is speculation, but personally, I think Jesus knows what's gonna happen. <laughs> I think he does this whole thing with a smile on his face. I think as the guy comes forward, he gets the attention of the crowd because again, he writes them into the story, bring him to me. And he asks the guy, what is it that you want me to do? Because he wants this guy now to teach the crowd an important truth about Jesus, about God. You see, he has probably said, have mercy on me hundreds, maybe thousands of times every day. Have mercy, a little mercy, have mercy. As the coins drop into the bucket, that's his way of providing food for himself, water to drink for himself, a meal today, maybe tomorrow. And now he's been shouting out, have mercy on me. Jesus calls him forward because Jesus, again, I think knows what's going to happen. And he's, and he's saying, what is it that you want me to do? In a way, he's going, blind guy, I want you to tell me in front of everybody listening here and everybody throughout the ages who's going to tell and retell this story, just what you want me to do for you. Blind guy, do you want, do you want a coin so that you can get something to eat today? Do you want me to meet a physical need for you or do you want me to meet your deepest spiritual need? He's, he's saying, blind guy, do, do you want me to provide a meal for you today or do you want a table, a seat at the wedding feast of the lamb? Do you want, do you want me to get you a fresh cup of cold water, blind guy, or, or do you want me to draw from the well of my living water that you will never thirst again? What do you want in front of everybody here? What's your answer? And with a smile on his face, I think the man knows exactly what he came for because he believes that Jesus is who he says he is. And he says, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, because remember they're watching, he made sure that the crowd was paying attention. When the people saw it, they also praised God. And he didn't, he didn't stop 
praising God. Because there's like this side thing in here about when you see the face of Jesus, you follow him everywhere and he followed him everywhere. It's probably the case, what we see in the story, we don't get his name in Luke chapter 18, but when Mark, who was also there, when Mark tells the story in Mark chapter 10, he says, oh, by the way, I followed up with him. The guy's name is Bartimaeus. And then according to church tradition, Bartimaeus followed Jesus from Jericho He didn't have a home. There was nothing for him. He had no job. He had no training. He had no network. He follows Jesus on into Jerusalem. And think about this. Blind Bartimaeus, in the first two weeks of receiving his sight, the first thing that he saw was the very face of God. And then he follows Jesus into Jerusalem and he sees the face of God now riding on a donkey, on a colt, as people are waving palm branches, yelling Hosanna and putting their coats on the ground so that the donkey, the animal, doesn't get its hooves dirty. And and as as Jesus is making his triumphal entry and as Bartimaeus is now watching all of this unfold with his new restored sight, he then goes on to see Jesus arrested Jesus whipped, Jesus spat on, Jesus nailed into a cross. And he wonders why this man would ever restore his sight to see such an awful thing. Until three days later, he sees Jesus rise triumphantly from the tomb and share the resurrection story. I mean, this is a guy who's never seen a sunset, never seen a sunrise never seen a human face before. And in the first two weeks, what a sight to behold. And I wonder, afterwards, by the way, he never stopped following Jesus. He became a leader in the church in Jerusalem, continued praising God everywhere he went. I wonder though, I wonder why on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus would have ever even bothered to press, to press pause on his greater mission to have this conversation. I mean, th- think about that Jesus knew. He predicted it several times. He knew what he was going to do in Jerusalem. He knew that it was nothing shy of saving the world. That was his mission. And he knew he was just a couple weeks out. Why would he press pause on that mission to have this conversation with blind Bartimaeus? And I think the answer is that Jesus didn't press pause on the mission to change the world by talking to Bartimaeus. This is how Jesus changed the world, by talking to the one Bartimaeus by changing one heart, by changing one mind, by changing one life at a time. And Jesus tells this story, whether it's Bartimaeus or whether it's a lost coin or whether it's a missing sheep or whether it's a wayward child. It's a story that Jesus would tell and tell and retell again and again and again, as many times as we can possibly hear it because Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm never too busy. I'm never too distracted. I never have too great of a mission because I am changing the world and this is my mission. Not to stop it, but to continue it by saving one person at a time.
I heard a story a little while ago about a man in old age looking at life through the rear view and not the windshield. And for some reason, that just gives more perspective. And he said, when I was looking back as a young man, maybe in his 20s, he said, I wanted to change the world. Probably like every 20-something wants to change the world. But I realized after I matured and grew up and grew out of that, in my 30s that I was never going to change the world. In fact, that's way too big of a dream. That's way too big of a vision. In, in fact, what I should spend my time isn't the world. What I should spend my time is just at home, in my own country, in, the, in my own nation. We have enough problems. We have enough division. Maybe I should, I should heal and restore this before looking more broadly. And then after he grew up and out of the 30s into his 40s, he realizes that too was way too big. Right here, I drive these streets around my city and in my town. I'll focus on changing and restoring this little patch of God's blue marble. And then after his 40s, realizing that that too was big and devoting his 50s to realizing that God was giving him influence over those people closest to him, his family. I should, I should serve them and maybe I can, I can leverage some influence that I have with them to, to show them what God has shown me over the last five decades. And it wasn't until he was an old man again looking at life in the rear view instead of the windshield by saying, I couldn't change the world. I couldn't change my nation. I couldn't change my town, my city. I really can't even change those I have influence on within my own family. What I wish I would have known as a young man in my 20s was that I could really only let, and I'll add, really only let the grace of God change me. And then, then maybe if I exuded the change that God was doing in me in my 20s, I could have had some amount of influence. I, I could have passed along that experience of change to, to my family. And then as they grew up and grew out, they could have impacted the towns and the cities and maybe the states so that we could, we could have an, an influence, a change something holy on the nation and then beyond that, uh, it, bringing that to all nations on the planet and maybe by an old time, I'm an old man, I could look back at my life and see that, that God used my life to move the needle of the world just this much to making it more gracious, more holy, more merciful, more God-honoring, more Jesus-following. So like if there's a takeaway for you today, this morning, as you head into the week, maybe just consider this. We can't change the world. No matter how much passion you have, and some of you have passion, we can't change the world. But that's not our job. That's not what God has asked us to do. That's his, that's his job. I think that what God might be asking us to do isn't to change the world, a nation, a city, your family, but right now he might just be asking you to allow grace in to affect change in just one. And listen, listen, it's okay if that one that's changed is you. Start there. And if the grace of Jesus has had an impact on your heart and has affected change in your life, and if he's stirring in you and moving in you, let that emanate out. Let that go out 
to those cards that you received when you came in today. The one, the one family member, the one employee, the one boss, the one colleague, the one neighbor. Because Jesus is changing the world. (laughs) And he's doing it. One person, one heart, one mind, one life at a time. Everybody just stand up. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you because you're more, you're so much more than the Jesus of Nazareth. That you're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're the Messiah. You're the one with the answers. Where else would we go? God, you've given us and you've instilled in us these holy passions that I thank you for. And I ask that you continue to to kindle those passions so that that fire may spread. But God, may it begin with us. May it begin with with what you're doing, Holy Spirit, inside of us so that it naturally, it emanates out from us. And so that change that we see in the world, God, is from you. God, convict us in the ways that we need to be convicted this week. Show us the things that you have for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.